last three weeks we have been, I know, this is like so nerdy, but I've, I've explained this uh, in a couple different ways, that every Christmas, you know, we have Advent, sort of a calendar of what we're going to talk about while we're in this season, and we have this story that comes out of like four main chapters, and so you got to kind of think and be creative on what you're going to talk about when you get to Christmas, or you end up saying the same thing every single year. And so I was really spending time thinking through what it was going to look like to talk about uh, you know, preparing ourselves for Jesus this season, and I stumbled upon really focusing in on the genealogy. And so the last two weeks, which I know probably if you're you know, uh, not, uh, I don't know, whatever church you've grown up in, they probably haven't spent a lot of time focused on the genealogy. They usually start reading Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, not Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. It's a mouthful for anyone, um, and it's something that we generally just kind of skip over because we're not Jewish and we don't live in the first century and it doesn't have the same meaning to us as it did to them. But what I'm trying to say is it has tons and tons of meaning about who Jesus uh, was going to be. And so um, today we're focused again in the genealogy. We've talked about two weeks ago that Jesus was the son of David because it starts off, son of David, son of Abraham in his genealogy. And uh, just to kind of give you an idea, the word genealogy really translates to the word Genesis right, which we know because of obviously the book of Genesis, that means beginnings, could also mean uh, family, could be translated to family or line, Um, and so as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we're looking at the beginning here of Jesus stepping into our world or the family line of Jesus uh, as we spend time, and we can glean so much about how Matthew wrote this. So we talked about him being a son of David, last week we talked about him being the son of Abraham as God pursues us. And he came into our world and introduced himself to us, told us what to call him, gave himself a name, and that name directly connects all the way back to Jesus' name, that Yeshua, right, or Jesus, that's translated in their language would have been Yeshua, or Yehosha, or Joshua would be the word that we would translate it into, uh, really means the Lord saves. That Jesus' name literally means the Lord saves. Saves, And then today we're going to be looking at some of the people who were included in the genealogy and why were they included in the genealogy. So I'm going to go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you're in a pew Bible, anyone? Give me a page number. Somebody find me a page number for Matthew 1, chapter 1. I should probably keep that one handy, huh? 827. You win. See me afterwards for a peanut butter cup. So... Sword drills. We're going back to that. All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah of uh, Yeshua, uh, Christos, which we talked about means Christ or Messiah, and, and it harkens back to the Old Testament. Messiah means Messiah. Christos is Christ. This word can be translated both ways. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In three weeks, we only got through one verse. Uh, We did read the whole thing the first week, but Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So far, similar genealogy to any genealogy, right? They go all the way back to patriarchs. So all the patriarchs get listed first, and that's what we're doing here. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, father of Hezron. Hezron, father of Ram. Ram, father of Aminadab. That one's a mouthful. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, father of Salmon. 
Salmon, father of Boaz, who was mother, was Rahab. Boaz, father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay, so why do I stop there? Because in this section, we talked about it being broken down into three sections. Are people who are added into this... Now, Matthew does not actually hit every generation in the genealogy that he writes. So we know he was selective. He didn't leave anyone out by accident. He left everybody out on purpose. And the people he chose to put in, he chose to put in on purpose. You have 14 generations in the first section, 14 generations in the middle section, 14 generations in the last section. It didn't happen that way exactly. Matthew is telling a story. He's helping us understand that Jesus' line comes through a very complicated mess, web of all kinds of things. And it should give us, uh, when we step back and look at it, it should make us feel better about our situation that we're dealing with. Like, I don't know how you feel about going to see family when it comes to Thanksgiving or Christmas. And maybe you have that family where everybody loves each other and they get along. And we've got all these traditions where we're, you know, we drink our eggnog and we watch this movie and we, you know, all go out and have a snowball fight in our brand new scarves, you know, and we're all wearing Christmas pajamas and there's a fireplace and, you know, like everybody's sleeping all over the house, but it's just wonderful. Somebody's in the cupboard, someone's in the bathtub. It's beautiful, right? I feel like all of these movies, you know, that like talk about Christmas or like kind of like give us this picture of Christmas, they all look like this. And um, I don't know anybody who has this situation. Like maybe you're the exception. And probably if you do have that, it's only half the family, right? Like there's one half of the family where this works out and the other half of families in shambles. All of us, all of us have a hot mess to deal with, right? The, the people around us carry baggage. The people around us have issues. We, by the way, if you look around your family and you don't see anybody who carries issues or is a hot mess or has them, it's, it's you. Um, <laughs> Your, your family's sitting in another church service somewhere thinking about you <laughs> coming to their, their thing. Uh, all of us are carrying stuff, and all of our families are a hot mess, and all of us have pieces and pockets and sides of our family that we you know, don't know how to deal with or you know, don't seem like this perfect picture. And I want you to understand, when you read this genealogy, you should understand that your Savior had the same thing going on in his family line. That there was pockets of hot mess all throughout this. And if, by the way, Matthew was making up this genealogy, this is not the one that you would want to make up. To give this made-up religion credibility, you wouldn't, use these, you wouldn't use this line. Now, I think part of what Matthew is even doing here is saying, hey, I need you to understand that what Jesus is doing is not what you've expected not what you're thinking. It's going to be way different than you expect and what you think. And there's going to be a whole lot to this that's going to be uh, difficult to work through, that Jesus is going to be not exactly what you wanted him to be. I think most people then were still waiting for the Messiah, right, from the Old Testament, the Messiah, to come and get Rome off of their back, to take Rome's foot off of their neck. For them to say, hey, we want to be free and outside of Rome's jurisdiction and we want to just be the kingdom of Israel again. And that was not going to happen. Jesus did not come to give them political freedom. right? He came to turn 
them into servants. He really came in a way to prepare them for the fact that their temple was going to be destroyed in like AD 80, that they were going to lose their way of religion in worshiping God, and they were going to have to figure out what it looked like to now be lost without a center home base of operations and how the church was going to have to scatter throughout the entire world and change significantly. And so Matthew is preparing the reader for the story. And we remember we talked about how like this is not the way you'd want to start a blockbuster movie, right? With, with just a, a genealogy. But to the average reader in the first century, when they heard the names Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, which is so passive-aggressive, right? You have to love... As Minnesotans, you're like, good, that's a good one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. This is the same thing that happens when my kid does something bad, and I say to my wife, that's your kid. <laughs> like, your, your child did that. Your child is the one who did that. And she looks at me like, where do you think they get these genes? Like, it's the bad in them? It's not coming from me. It's, it's you, dude. And she's definitely right. Um... I'm the rule breaker, right, in our, in our relationship. But yeah, when they heard these names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, those names perked them up. Those names immediately got their attention because these aren't even the ones that you would have included if you were trying to make this clean and tight and proper and happy. You would have used matriarch's names. You would have used names like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, those would have been the names that you would have used. The matriarchs, the ones who were married to the patriarchs, those people from generations ago who had the perfect marriage, which, by the way, your great-great-grandparents, who everybody says had the perfect marriage, didn't, right? But that would have been who you would have used. It would have been the original, the OG sort of matriarchs would have been the ones left in. And these four were shocking. It would have been like starting the story in a place that just, you couldn't believe that they were going to say, hey, this is the Messiah, and he comes from these people. No way would this have made any sense. Why? First of all, they were women. You actually didn't, honestly, very often, by the way, when I wrote this, I, it was not, I had women exclamation point on my original notes here. Uh, if you're following along in the app, it still says women with exclamation. Uh, they left the women out of genealogies. Often they didn't include them at all. There was no reason to include them because they weren't considered the important part of the genealogy. The fact that Matthew brings women into the picture and the, that he brings these women into the picture should tell us he's trying to tell us something. He's trying to tell us something. He's pointing us in a direction saying, look, you want to know about Jesus? Let me start by telling you, he came from the hottest mess of family lines. That included people like, and then went through this list of people. And the fact that they were women at all was a huge piece of this. You know, we are still, the church, still arguing over, I, I know, and I don't even know how to say this phrase sometimes. We did a podcast about this uh, last year, and it's like sometimes the way you say it just even sounds like sexist. There's no way around it, but like, you know, there are still people arguing over what to do with women in the church. I know that, that statement feels like super sexist and weird. Uh, I know what to do with... No, that sounds terrible. Don't... <laughs> let, me, let me figure out. I know how to... I know as an organization how to move forward. Uh, we're going to do it like Jesus did. We're going to respect every person that's alive, that has life, uh, has air running through their 
lungs that God himself spent time creating, that he absolutely loves like dearly, that he's gifted and called to do ministry. I, I, there is no reason for us to be making these separations and saying, hey, ladies, get over here. It's just not what Jesus did. He had women traveling, often traveling with him. He respected women in, in a different way than other leaders of his time. He gave dignity to all people. He found himself in the presence of prostitutes and very good you know, Hebrew women that were like perfect in the eyes of society and people who were all over the map. And he found himself in those situations and gave everyone dignity and included everyone in what was going on and gave big, huge parts of the first church to women. There is no reason why. And I think Matthew was trying to say that. Like, hey, the way that we've been, been doing things, it's, it's, it doesn't need to go forward anymore because Jesus has come so that there would be neither slave you know, uh, nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. That everybody will be included in what's going on. This is a shocking inclusion and it fits right along with Jesus' ministry. So not just women, but also these women, most of them are Gentiles. Mary is not a Gentile. She would have been on that original list of people in Jesus' genealogy. But if you go back and take a look, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah, all foreigners, all outside of the, the tribe of Israel, all brought into the tribe of Israel, all of them would have been considered Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They would have been second-class citizens in, within the, you know, the group of, uh, of Jews. And Matthew is like, no, Jesus in his line has people who aren't Jewish in his line. He's got Gentiles in his line. This is important because Jesus was coming so that he could bring Jews and Gentiles together and create a church that included both religious and unreligious people. Ear, irreligious, irreligious people. That if you have ever felt like you didn't fit in a church and you didn't really understand what was going on or this wasn't for you or whatever, he came so that both types of these people could be included together in the church. Like, we don't expect you to have a Bible degree when you come and join what's going on, and we don't even expect you to understand what the word Gentiles is until I tell you. Right? Like, this is what Jesus was doing. He was saying, hey, we accepted foreigners into this line, and we have people who have all kinds of uh, undesirable reputations. That's the third thing that was included here. Not just women, not just Gentiles. Undesirable reputations. Tamar is married to one of Judah's sons. He dies. She gets given to his brother. His brother won't sleep with her to give her a son or daughter, a child. And so God kills him for his sin. I know, this is a crazy story. In fact, when we preached through Genesis, we were, we were outside at the time. And uh, so like out in public, you know, and we were preaching verse by verse. I like, this is the only time I think in like the four years that I've been preaching verse by verse where I skipped over a section because I just didn't know how to preach the Tamar section outdoors with like in public because God kills uh, her, wife, her, her husband for being sinful, kills the brother for being sinful. Then she dresses herself up, covers her face, goes and sleeps with the uh, patriarch uh, to get pregnant, to have a child. And when she's found to be pregnant, she had taken something from him in that exchange. And then he was going to kill her for being adulterous and getting pregnant. And then she showed him the thing that she had. And she was like, he was like, oh no, I got caught. This is my baby. Okay, that's what she did. Her undesirable reputation was pretty strong in that situation. She was going to do anything she could to 
become pregnant and to carry on her line. So that's in Jesus's. Rahab was a prostitute. That's in Jesus's. Ruth, uh, you know, was uh, a foreigner, a Moabite, who comes and is part of now. Ruth is great. The whole book of the Bible about Ruth, she's fantastic. But she came from one of the most enemy tribes she could have possibly come from to become part of the Jewish landscape. And she's taken in, and, and she has an incredible story. Uriah's wife, what an unbelievably passive-aggressive way to say Bathsheba, who David found uh, while she was bathing on a rooftop and basically stole her from Uriah and then made sure that he died on the battlefield so that he could, she basically killed his friends so that he could steal, steal his wife. These reputations are all in Jesus' line. Why is Jesus uh, coming from this stock of people? Why did Matthew write Jesus' genealogy that way? Why did he include all of these people, these women, these Gentiles, these unreputable sort of situations or repu- uh, these undesirable reputations? Why did Matthew write Jesus' genealogy this way? And as people who live in the day that we live in, who come from the culture that we come from, we could read through this without catching any of that and just sort of skim over it and think it's just, uh, you know, some line that kind of gave Jesus some authority that he is the person who he says he is, and it is that. But also, Matthew is telling us some things about Jesus. The first is that Jesus truly came for all people. He truly came for all people. He didn't just come for the religious. He didn't just come for the special people, the Jews. Jesus came to bring all people into the, you know, the pasture. To say, everyone's welcome now to become part of this family. You may feel like you're so far away from God that this is not your thing, that you don't fit in a church. You are why Jesus came. You may have grown up in the church and have gone to every vacation Bible school and sung every song that ever existed, and you have magnets of Jesus on your fridge, and you grew up eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches shaped like Jesus' face. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. You're also welcome. Right? Like the idea here was that Jesus came for all people, and it was announced. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel, who comes to announce Jesus? He's announcing to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for who? It should say for Israel. It should say for the Jews. And it doesn't. Why doesn't it say that? Because that's not why Jesus came. He came for all people. You find yourself super far away from God, He came for you. You find yourself close to God, He came for you. You find yourself asking questions, He came for you. You find yourself distrusting the church, He came for you. It doesn't matter what hang-ups you have, what habits you have, what hurt is in your life, what trauma you've been through. Jesus is wrapping His arms around you and saying, I came for you. There's a reason why He came in the flesh, so that we would know Him personally that he would relate to us on a level that nobody else can relate to us, that no God has ever tried to relate to humanity in in that way. And here's Jesus. And if you think about it, God's purpose all through Scripture, from beginning to end, is to be with his people. He starts in his perfection, right? In the garden, every day coming and walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve and spending time with them to be with his people. It goes on to his relationship with with Israel, he brings them out of captivity so he can be with them. He starts a, 
a desert tent ministry, right? Where they're just doing, they're doing tent ministry out in the desert, right? For 40 years. What is he doing? He's being with his people. He's creating a people. He's changing them into what he wants them to do. Then what do they do? They build a temple. Now God has a place to dwell with his people. Here comes Jesus on the scene to be with his people. The, the temple goes away. Jesus goes away. And we're left with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can be with his people. We read through Revelation and it says that God will come back and he will rebuild this perfect city so he has a place to dwell for eternity with his people. This is the goal that God has. He's not a disconnected, disaffected, spin the world up, stand back, watch it all happen, be like a kid on a, you know, burning ants on an anthill. This is not who God is. God is personal. And he is pursuing you. He's pursuing you in everything he does through Scripture. And often we have those stories of redemption, right? Like, hey, I was so far away. I wasn't paying attention. I was in my sin. I was stuck in this place or that place. And God kept on, kept on. He wouldn't leave me alone. He kept pursuing me. He kept drawing me in. He kept doing things in my life. He kept bringing people into my life. He kept doing things because he loves us and he wants to be with his people. And so when those angels come and they say, don't be afraid, why do they say don't be afraid? Because angels are terrifying. That's one thing you will find in Scripture. They're giant and crazy, and you feel very small in their presence. They come and they say, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And I'm sure they still heard that Israel. All of Israel. That's probably what they heard. And they didn't understand that Jesus was going to kick down the wall that separates Jews and Gentiles. They said, great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been wrapped. A, a, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign you'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. But Jesus came to kick the wall down between Jews and Gentiles. Here's what it says. Jews and non-Jews, religious and non-religious, close to God and far from God, people who love the church, people who hate the church people who want to fight and argue and have tons of doubts and aren't sure, and people who are, you know, have tons of faith and got it all figured out. He came for all of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what Jesus himself came to do. For he himself, Jesus, he himself, is our peace. He has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus literally kicked the wall down between the religious sort of you know, this group of people that God had spent time creating and were his special people, and he kicked the wall down and made access for everyone. He says, by setting aside in his flesh the laws and with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Wherever you, wherever you find yourself in this church today, wherever you find yourself with God today, you need to understand that Jesus' purpose was to kick the wall down and to make sure that you know that you are welcome in his church. By the way, that gets really messy. 
The minute we kick the wall down and we just welcome people into our church and we don't make them jump through hoops before they show up and we don't have them behave perfectly before they show up and they come in and they bring their messes with them, you know, and we have to somehow figure out how to explain to our kids what they're seeing at church. By the way, we know we're doing it right. That's how we know. But God literally sent Jesus to kick the wall down and make sure that those people who don't fit, who don't know where they fit, who don't have a place to belong, have a place, are welcomed in. And like, I don't want to vilify you if you have like questions and doubts and concerns and you don't know where you stand with God and you're just not really sure, you, you don't really know where to go and you're not really, okay, you're welcome here. Pull up a chair. Get to know some people. I think you'll find that people here are pretty unbelievable. It's like the greatest thing we got going for us as a church. Jesus came for all people, and he came at the right time. Take a look. Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And I don't even know how to process when the set time had fully come. I don't even know how to process that. I've actually studied that phrase and looked at that, and it just, if you think about it too long, your head just explodes. It's so full of meaning. It tells us unbelievable things, that God knew us before Jesus came, that he had a plan from the very beginning, that he spent time on what that plan would look like, that he was moving all the pieces on the chessboard the entire time so that he could have a relationship with each and every one of us. It will absolutely melt you down if you really think about it too long. But this was all part of God's plan. And when we sit back and we say, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, it's not. There was a plan from the beginning, and it always included Jesus, and he was always plan A, he was always the reason that all of that was happening to get ready for Jesus. The last thing I want to mention is that Jesus came to save us from our sin. If you've noticed, this has actually been one of the points in all of the sermons. Because Jesus' name means God saves. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Right? Take a look at the Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. We didn't even get to this part yet. We only got through 17 verses. This is the uh, angel speaking to Joseph. And telling Joseph that, hey, I know your wife's pregnant and everything, but like, don't blame her. She didn't like have an affair. Like The Holy Spirit did that. Uh, that's a crazy thing for Joseph to even process. We're actually going to talk about that at our Christmas Eve Eve service. Don't worry, it'll be really nice and happy. You bring all your neighbors. Uh, I promise I won't talk about anything too uncomfortable. Right? So... Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. From before Jesus existed, that was his purpose. You need to understand, you have sin in your life. That sin separates you from God. That Jesus came to this earth to show us what it looked like to live God's way, and then to live that perfect life and become the sacrifice for us, that when he went to the cross, there was some sort of magical thing that happened in God's eyes where his perfection was imparted to us as long as we would receive that, that we can have forgiveness of sins because of his sacrifice. 
That was always his purpose. That he would take, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Sorry, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Because that's what Jesus is. He's God with us. He's God in the flesh. He's God incarnate. This is one of my favorite words to break down. If you've known me long enough, you've heard me break this down a million times. Incarnate. What do you hear? Let me break it down for you. In. Meaning. In. <laughs> Some, write it down. Please, somebody write this down. I know. You can tweet this. Oh, we, uh, I don't even know what we're doing now. X this. You can X this later. I don't know what that means. Uh, you can put it on social media. In carn, carn, carne, carn, meat. Means meat. The, the word means flesh. But I always think of like carne asada, tacos, brisket. <laughs> in the meat. Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus put on flesh. Jesus stepped out of heaven, out of the, the seat that was at the right hand of God, and put on flesh to relate to you. That means Jesus carried the pain that you carry, the trauma that you carry. The, he, he cried the same tears. He struggled with anger the same way. And he did it all in a way that honored God. He came and he walked in our shoes because he wanted to be with us. Now, if I asked everybody here, even if you like barely have ever been to church in your entire life, right, and you only know one verse maybe from... What is the, probably the most common verse that everybody in the world would probably quote if I say, hey, quote one Bible verse? If I go into Walmart and I say, quote a Bible verse, what verse am I going to get from 90% of people? Not yet. Only, only punks are going to give me Jesus wept because it's two words. <laughs> By the way, give me the, give me the reference. Uh, New Testament. Yeah, New, yeah, New Testament, he says, New Testament. Listen, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everybody in the world knows that. You want to like, blow someone's mind who knows nothing about the Bible. Okay? And they're probably talking to you about Jesus, and they're talking about how he's judgmental, and he's here to judge, and you know, all these Christians are judgmental. This is why you know, God does this to people, blah, 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 blah. No. Just take him to the next verse. Can you put that, can you put that back up? The next verse is verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He did not send Jesus here for us to beat up on people who are already struggling and in pain and have questions and aren't sure and don't fit and aren't sure about the church. He didn't send us, you know, he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to what? He sent him to save the world through him. I don't want to be dramatic. Like, I really don't. I know there, if you get online and you watch people make fun of pastors, it's probably the moment where they're crying in tears at the end and, you know, are pleading with people to understand their mortality and whatever. But, like, it's real. You, you don't have, you're not given any more days on this earth. Tomorrow can be your day. Like, Jesus came to save you, and that requires you to receive that gift. Any gift that's not received is not a gift. But Jesus is here, 
And he's come to save. And he's offering this free offer of salvation to those of us who are probably taking it way too lightly. Everyone in this area needs to now receive Jesus. Let's go. I, I just don't know how to... Like, if you, if you get one thing out of this season, please stop long enough to realize that you have sin that's probably not been dealt with. And here's God fixing the problem and offering you a solution. And you probably held him at arm's length and said, I don't want to deal with this. And now's the time to do it. Like, this season is a time for you to stop and to take stock and to remember who God is, that he came to save, that he, that he loves you personally, that he wants to be in a relationship with you, and that he offers you salvation. Let me, let, me, let me finish our time with prayer here. Jesus, I just pray that as you even work every heart in this room, as you make it clear that you have been drawing them in, pulling them in, dragging them in, God, that they would respond to the fact that you first pursued us that you would break them over their sin. That you would break them over their pride, over their lust, over their disobedience. And God, that you would show them that there is a way forward. That you didn't come in the world to condemn them. You came in the world to save them. And I thank you that even your name means God saves. And I pray, God, that as we deal with our own mortality, our own sin, our own need for a Savior, God, that you wouldn't let the busyness of this season just overwhelm us and cause us to miss what you're doing. Help us to receive you again into our hearts this season. Help us to stay focused on the fact that you were making this unbelievable overture to humanity to show us that you care about us and that you would go first in this. Help us to receive that. To say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Would you come into my life? Would you remove my sin? Would you make me right in your eyes? And God, would you change me from the inside out to become the kind of person who honors and obeys you? In Jesus' name, amen.